our true stories. May 26, 2003, Aaron Ralston was hiking. A boulder fell on his right hand. He waited four days, then he amputated his own arm with a pocket knife. On New Year's Eve, a woman who was bungee jumping in Zimbabwe, the cord broke. She then fell into a river and had to swim back to land in crocodile-infested waters with a broken collarbone. Claire Champlin was smashed in the face by a five-pound watermelon being propelled by a slingshot. Matthew Brobus was hit by a javelin. David Striegel was punched in the mouth by a kangaroo. The most amazing part of these stories is when asked about the experience, they all smiled, shrugged, and said, I guess things could have been worse. So go ahead. Tell me that you're having a bad day. Tell me about the traffic. Tell me about your boss. Tell me about the job you've been trying to quit for the past four years. Tell me the morning is a townhouse burning to the ground. Tell me the snooze button is a fire extinguisher. Tell me the alarm clock stole the keys to your smile, drove it into 7 a.m. and the crash totaled your happiness. Tell me, tell me, tell me how blessed are we to have tragedy so small it can fit on the tips of our tongues. You see, when Evan, you see, when Evan lost his legs, he was speechless. When my cousin was assaulted, she didn't speak for 48 hours. When my uncle was murdered, we had to send out a search party to find my father's voice. Most people, most people, most people have no idea that tragedy and silence have the exact same address. When your day is a museum of disappointments hanging from events that were outside of your control. When you find yourself flailing in an ocean of why is this happening to me? When it feels like your guardian angel put in his two-week notice two months ago and just decided not to tell you. When it feels like God is a babysitter that's always on the phone. When you get punched in the esophagus by a fistful of life. Remember that every year, two million people die of dehydration. So it doesn't matter if the glass is half full or half empty. There's water in the cup. Drink that shit and stop complaining. You see, muscle. Muscle is created by repeatedly lifting things that have been designed to weigh us down. So when your shoulders feel heavy, stand up straight, lift your chin, hell, call it exercise. Remember that life is a gym membership with a really complicated cancellation policy. Remember that you will survive. Remember things could be worse. Remember we are never ever given anything that we can't handle. When the world crumbles around you, you have to look at the wreckage and then build a new one out of all the pieces that are still here. Remember you are still here. The human heart beats approximately 4,000 times per hour and each pulse, each throb, each palpitation is a trophy engraved with the words, you are still alive. You are still alive. Act like If you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made, that you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. To pass SEAL training, there are a series of long swims that must be completed. One is the night swim. Before the swim, the instructors joyfully brief the students on all the species of sharks that inhabit the waters off San Clemente. They assure you, however, that no student has ever been eaten by a shark, at least not that they can remember. 
But you are also taught that if a shark begins to circle your position, stand your ground. Do not swim away. Do not act afraid. And if a shark, hungry for a midnight snack, darts towards you, then summons up all your strength and punch him in the snout, and he will turn and swim away. There are a lot of sharks in the world. If you hope to complete the swim, you will have to deal with them. So if you want to change the world, don't back down from the sharks. Over a few weeks of difficult training, my SEAL class, which started with 150 men, was down to just 42. There were now six boat crews of seven men each. I was in the boat with the tall guys, but the best boat crew we had was made up of the little guys, the munchkin crew, we called them. No one was over five foot five. The munchkin boat crew had one American Indian, one African American, one Polish American, one Greek American, one Italian American, and two tough kids from the Midwest. They out paddled, outran, and outswam all the other boat crews. The big men in the other boat crews would always make good natured fun of the tiny little flippers the munchkins put on their tiny little feet prior to every swim. But somehow these little guys from every corner of the nation and the world always had the last laugh, swimming faster than everyone and reaching the shore long before the rest of us. SEAL training was a great equalizer. Nothing mattered but your will to succeed, not your color, not your ethnic background, not your education, not your social status. If you want to change the world, measure a person by the size of their heart, not by the size of their flippers. The ninth week of training is referred to as Hell Week. It is six days of no sleep, constant physical and mental harassment, and one special day at the Mud Flats. The Mud Flats are an area between San Diego and Tijuana where the water runs off and creates the Tijuana Sloughs, a swampy patch of terrain where the mud will engulf you. It is on Wednesday of Hell Week that you paddle down in the mud flats and spend the next 15 hours trying to survive the freezing cold, the howling wind, and the incessant pressure to quit from the instructors. As the sun began to set that Wednesday evening, my training class, having committed some egregious infraction of the rules, was ordered into the mud. The mud consumed each man till there was nothing visible but our heads. The instructors told us we could leave the mud if only five men would quit. Only five men, just five men, and we could get out of the oppressive cold. Looking around the mud flat, it was apparent that some students were about to give up. It was still over eight hours till the sun came up. Eight more hours of bone-chilling cold. The chattering teeth and the shivering moans of the trainees were so loud, it was hard to hear anything. And then one voice began to echo through the night. One voice raised in song. The song was terribly out of tune, but sung with great enthusiasm. One voice became two, and two became three, and before long, everyone in the class was singing. The instructors threatened us with more time in the mud if we kept up the singing, but the singing persisted, and somehow the mud seemed a little warmer, and the wind a little tamer, and the dawn not so far away. If I have learned anything in my time traveling the world, it is the power of hope, the power of one person, a Washington, a Lincoln, King, Mandela, and even a young girl from Pakistan, Malala. One person can change the world by giving people hope. So if you want to change the world, 
Start each day with a task completed. Find someone to help you through life. Respect everyone. Know that life is not fair and that you will fail often. But if you take some risks, step up when the times are the toughest, face down the bullies, lift up the downtrodden, and never, ever give up. If you do these things, the next generation and the generations that follow will live in a world far better than the one we have today. And what started here will indeed have changed the world for the better. I said, I can't move. I said, there's a shock going through my whole body. I can't feel anything, man. I still remember the day I was in the film room watching film and I was watching the California Bears and my defensive backs coach Larry Slade came in the room. He said, Inky Johnson, I got some good news for you. And I dropped the clicker and I said, coach, what is it? He said, son, you're a projected top 30 draft pick. He said, all you have to do is play these next 10 football games. You're an automatic multi-millionaire. I ran out of the room. I got on the phone. I called my mother and my grandmother. I said, listen, I said, after this season, our lives are about to change forever. And little did I know our lives were really about to change. The first game we come out, play against California Bears, I get an interception, we shut them down, we get the victory. Second game, we're playing against Air Force, it gets late in the game, found ourselves in a dogfight. And I approach the tackle like I approach any other tackle. And the way I'm approaching it, either I'm gonna knock you out or you're gonna knock me out. I'm 165 pounds, I can't play with anybody. But at the point of contact, when I hit this guy, something different happened that had never happened to me before in my life. I hit him and it seemed as if every breath in my body left. My body went completely limp, I fell to the ground, I blacked out. I looked at the doctor because I couldn't feel my right arm. They had poked me with all type of needles. Inky, can you feel this? Can you feel I couldn't feel a thing? They took me back, they ran the CAT scans, and they rolled me back into my room, and I'll never forget it. All in about a 15-second time frame, I was lying there in my bed. My father, he went to take a step in, and he looked at me, and he said, son, I can't do it. And he walked out. My mother, she came in, she was running. She kissed me on my forehead, she said a prayer. She said, ain't everything is gonna be okay, and she ran out. And as soon as my mother stepped outside of the room, the doctor rushed in from the opposite side, and he said, hey, get in here, we gotta rush this guy back to emergency surgery, he's about to die. I said, what? I said, my mom just told me everything was going to be okay. He said, son, what happened? You have busted up some clavian artery in your chest, you're bleeding internally. I have to rush you back and take the main vein out of your left leg and plug it into your chest in order to save your life. And when I woke up from recovery, the same doctor was standing over me. He said, Inky, I have some good news and some bad news for you. I said, you got some bad news for me? I have to tell him I was about to die. I'm still alive. How bad can it get? I'm still here. He said, the good news is, son, we saved your life. I said, thank you, sir. He said, the bad news is you have nerve damage in your right shoulder. You probably can never play the game of football again in your life. I said, Doc, no disrespect, man, but I'm, I'm eight games away. I've been working for this ever since I was seven years old, Doc. There's no way. God, not now, God. Like, let me make it to the NFL so I can help my family first. Like, I, we miss meals. I said, there's no way. I never cheated. I never cheated myself. I gave everything I had to it, and I respected it. I never cheated. There's no way that my career can be over. I said, send me up to the Mayo Clinic. And after several visits, I'll never forget, this is when reality set in. It was me, my mother, my father in the room, and the doctors came in. They said, Inky Johnson, here's the deal. They said, son, we hate to tell you, but your arm, it would never be the same again. Your hand, it would never be the same again. Son, you can never play the game of football again. They said, son, here are your surgery options. We could take a muscle out of the back of your left leg, plug it into your right arm, but there's a possibility that you'll be left with a weak left leg and a weak right arm the rest of your life. 
Or we could take a nerve out of your left arm, reroute it up through your chest, down into your right arm, but there's a possibility that you'll be left with two weak arms the rest of your life. Or we could take a nerve out of your left rib, reroute it up through your chest, down into your right arm, but there's a possibility that you'll be left with a breathing problem and a weak right arm the rest of your life. By the way, tell us what you want to do in the morning. And the next morning I walked into the doctor's office, they said, son, what option did you choose? I said, no disrespect to you, doc, I'm not choosing an option. My situation is out of your hands. I said, no disrespect to you, doc, cut me where you gotta cut me. I said, I know I will come out of this situation okay. As I stand right here on this stage before you today, they cut me six times down my left thigh. They cut me two times across my right rib. They cut me two times across my right pec. They cut me one time across the left side of my neck, one time across the right side of my neck. They cut me from the bottom of my armpit all the way down to the bottom of my hand. And after they got through cutting on me, they said, son, you're gonna be in this hospital for the next 40 days. I walked out of the hospital on the third day. They said, you broke a record. How did you do it? And I said, first and foremost, the thing I want y'all to understand, I will never let a circumstance or a situation define my life. But most importantly, you know what I had invested? I had sweat equity. I had been working my whole life. And what I didn't understand by being determined to chase something, by being committed to it, and what commitment is, commitment is staying true to what you said you were going to do long after the mood that you have set it in has left. You see, people think commitment is saying, yes, I'll do it on the days when it feel good. But I have been committed to everything that I ever started in my life and I never stopped and I never quit it. And so by being committed to everything that I started, I finished it, it built a certain type of spirit, it built a certain type of mentality, it built a certain type of individual. And so now I couldn't quit even if I wanted to. I couldn't lay in the bed even if I wanted to. I couldn't stop even if I wanted to. I had too much sweat equity in my life and everything that I was doing. I understood the process is more important than the product. It wasn't about the outcome for me. Whether I made it to the NFL or not, that was inconsequential in God's plan for my life. But I was going to fall in love with that process because I understood by falling in love with that process, it was going to turn me into a machine. A lot of people need a little extra money to get motivated. A lot of people need, you know, whatever the case may be, a little bonus to get motivated. I don't need anything but breath in my body and life. And every day I wake up, I understand I got two children depending on me. I understand I got a wife depending on me. I understand I got a world that needs me. The reason I go at life with the passion and the zeal that I go at it with is because I understand every day of my life is somebody in the world that is depending on me. It may not be you. And if it's just about you, you're in trouble because I'm telling you, you're gonna hit something in life that's a lot tougher than you. And it's gonna test your will and it's gonna test your heart. And if it's just about you and if it's just about the product, it will crush you. Every day I get up, I understand. It's somebody in a free world that's looking at me to see if I'm gonna keep going. And so I can't quit. And so I went back to school the next week after they had just saved my life. I was back in class. I had to learn how to write all over again. I had to learn how to walk all over again. I had to learn how to tie my shoe all over again. I had to learn how to bathe all over again. I had to learn how to live life all over again. Never one time did I say, let me go home. I need a break. You see, the thing we have to understand about everything that we're a part of, first and foremost, it's a blessing by God. And when it's a blessing, you can't help but to give everything you got to it. My life got saved. I got spared my life. I almost died. The doctor came to me on the field. He was on one knee and he grabbed my wrist and he said, son, you don't have a pulse. I don't even know how you're still living. The thing about it, my wound, like you can see this. You can see my arm. My wound is visible. But it's a lot of people in this room that are wounded. And you can't see it. And it's internal. 
And so the, the opportunities that we pass up to be a blessing to other people, we can save their life with just one encounter. And my last doctor visit, they came to me and they said, sorry, Inky Johnson, you will never be able to use this arm and hand again in your life. I said, no disrespect to you, doc, but I will use this arm and his hand every day for the rest of my life by the way that I live my life. Every day, I'm going to impact someone's life. Every day, I'm going to empower someone. Every day, I'm going to inspire someone. Every day, I'm going to encourage someone. I had to feed 22 horses every morning before I earned the right to have breakfast. Imagine an eight and a half year old kid getting up in the dark in Canada and going outside and opening the barn door. And I remember there would be like 30 rats every time I opened the barn door and they would scurry around and I would hope that none of them would stay around. And one time I went back to the house and I said, dad, can you come with me? And he locked the door and he says, go out and do your chores and don't come back until they're done. And it was kind of the beginning of me realizing that I wasn't in a supportive environment. And I learned one thing, and one thing only, is that if I was willing to work hard, then I could get my dad's attention. But I remember waking up, I was about 13 or 14 years old, and this was the day my dad had promised me it was gonna be yes. This was the day we were gonna play together. We were gonna throw the football back and forth, and I was super excited. I hopped out of my bed and I ran down the stairs, and I saw my father where he always is. His ankle is chained to the desk. But as I got closer, I knew something was wrong. It was like I could, I could feel there was a heaviness in the air. And I started to get nervous. And I went, Dad? And he went, yes. I went, uh, um, you, you, you ready to go play? And the weirdest thing happened is he turned, he looked at me, and I felt myself shrinking down. And he stood up and this shadow cast over me. And he goes, do you have any idea what it takes to put food on the table? Do you think that this roof just puts itself there? Money doesn't grow on trees, you know. One day you're gonna have to work hard for money. Now get out and play on your own before I put you to work. And I turned around and I walked out and I never asked him again to play, ever. I don't have one memory of playing with my dad. Not one. The only way I connected with him was when he was working around the house doing a chore. I'd say, Dad, can I help you? I'd hand him the nails or I'd hold the measuring tape. It was the only way. Never once. He never came to my hockey games. He dropped me off in the car and stayed in the car. All the other parents were tying their skates. I was there alone. I would try to score as many goals as I could so I could go in and tell him that I scored the winning goals. So he'd want to come and look, but he never did. I remember winning honors in school for um, academic achievement, looking out in the crowd, hoping to see my dad, but he was never there. So the only solace I had was to work hard. So I doubled down on that and I worked hard and I'd call him out to look at the tasks being done and invariably it was never good enough. So I doubled down again and work harder. It didn't feel good at the time, but in life what you do, if you do what is easy, life will be difficult. But if you do what is difficult, life will be easy. I got the difficult part out front, and I got really good at it. By the time I was 14, I saved up enough money to get a scooter. By the time I was 16, I had my first car. By the time I was 17, I thought, you know what? I'm out of here. This sucks. I mean, I could go out and make four times the amount of money living on my own, even if I have to pay rent. I don't care. So I moved out. I drove a taxi. I did carpentry. I cut lawns. I washed windows. I did anything that was hard work, because that's all I knew. And then my life changed. 
I got a call from my stepmom and she said, your dad has cancer. So I jumped on a plane and I did everything I could. I took care of the house. He said to me he had some back taxes from Canada that were unpaid. I said, yes, I'll pay them for you. I did everything I possibly could. And I remember the day I had to leave to go back to take care of my family. I had a young son at the time and I had nothing left. And I asked my dad, well, he was probably 98 pounds sitting, lying in the bed. And I said, dad, can you think of a time when, um, when I, I made you proud? And I'm thinking to myself, my God, there's a whole bunch. I, I was almost a millionaire by that time. I had done so many things. I'd risen up, I'd opened a restaurant, I'd learned a new language, I'd done so many things. This was the time he was gonna go, of course, son, let me read from a list. But instead, he said nothing that I can think of. And I don't know if it broke my spirit or if I thought I'd hit rock bottom, I hit another layer. But when I got back home, actually, I was fired from my job. My marriage had fallen apart. Um, I had no money left that, that I'd paid to support him, so I got evicted from my apartment and I moved back in my mom, with my mom at the age of 30. So there I am, 30 years old, working 16 hours a day for 20 years, and I have absolutely nothing to show for it, except maybe a skill set on how to work hard. But I tell you what, when you're down there and you think there's nothing left, it's the foundation to grow from. I thought, what am I gonna do now? And some little bird mentioned real estate, so I thought I'd get into real estate. I got into real estate, and that's when I met my first mentor that transformed my life. I was in my office one night really late and I was having a conversation with my mentor and he walks in and he leans against the door and he goes, you're still here? And I said, yeah. And he goes, you really have a great work ethic. And I went, you talking to me? He goes, yeah, I'm talking to you. He goes, you're awesome. I'm like, are you still talking to me? It's like I never had anybody tell me that they believed in me. My father certainly was always, you could do better, you could do better, you could do better. Yeah, it drove me, but it didn't make me feel confident. And I doubted it at first. And we started to talk, and he goes, oh, so you've labeled yourself stupid as a loser and a skinny little kid. He goes, how do you feel about that? And I said, I still feel that way. He says, you're 30 years old. I go, yeah, I know, but I still felt that way inside. He says, okay, we're gonna change that. Who's an idol that you have? I said, well, one of my favorite is, is you know, like Clint Eastwood. He's like, Rugged, I'm kind of rugged, I feel rugged. He goes, perfect. How does that feel when you say that? I said, that feels pretty good. He goes, that's it. I want you to say that a thousand times. A thousand times every day or more if you want. Loser out, ruggedly handsome in. So now what we're gonna do is we're gonna reprogram your brain. Your brain is like software. We're just gonna reprogram it. I said, how do I do that? He goes, just every time you have a chance, say, I'm ruggedly handsome, I'm ruggedly handsome. He said, the words that follow I am follow you. You just didn't know it. You had shitty programming. But now we're gonna change that and change that forever. And I remember driving home, I was so excited. I was, I was so excited because I could change my program. I didn't know it. I thought I was stuck that way my whole life. And all I had to do was have the energy to put it into changing the way I see myself. And it was, I just said it over, I remember screaming in the car, I'm ruggedly handsome, ruggedly handsome, ruggedly handsome. I'd get up in the morning, I'd say it over and over and over again. I'd say it as much as I possibly could. And then spontaneously one morning, I was in the shower and I said, I'm the greatest real estate agent in my area. I'm the greatest real estate agent in my area. And I went from one sale in my first year to in a few years, a hundred sales. I broke every record there was. And then I bought the freaking company. Went from, from farm boy to financially free. I became resourceful. I became capable of doing things I didn't know I was gonna do. The most powerful force in the human psyche is how we describe ourselves to ourselves. Who's giving you labels? 
you're too short, you're too tall, you're quiet, you're introverted. And you take on those labels and you wear them like they're your persona. And then you live into them, like a role that you were given in life. You can rewrite that. You can make it whatever you want. Insert it and then program it. I am. I am. You are what? Gifted, guided, grateful, powerful, passionate, playful, sexy, sensual, sensitive, and blessed. What are you? Today is the first day of the rest of your life and you get to redefine yourself. So who are you? And who do you want to be? The words that follow I am follow you. People ask me all the time, what is the secret to success? And I always tell them what the short version is, you got to have a 22 inch biceps. <laughs> and you got to be able to kill predators with your bare hands. And of course, you got to have this charming Austrian accent. This is a, that's a given. The long version is that I actually always had five rules. You don't need to be a bodybuilding champion. You don't need to want to be an action hero or anything like that. If you want to excel in whatever you do, those rules are for you. So my first rule is find your vision and follow it. If you don't have a goal, if you don't have a vision, you just drift around. You're not going to be happy. I grew up after the Second World War. Austria, right along with Germany, lost the Second World War. There was, of course, depression. There was a terrible economic situation. I wanted to get out of there. I wanted to escape. And luckily, one day in school, I watched a documentary about America. I knew exactly that is where I wanted to end up. The question was just, how do I get there? How do I get to America? No one had the money to travel or anything. But one day, I was fortunate enough to see a bodybuilding magazine. And on the cover was this very muscular guy. Mr. Universe becomes Hercules star. His name was Reg Park. I read the article as fast as I could, learning about how he grew up in Leeds in England, poor, and how he trained five hours a day, every single day, and trained and trained and trained, and then he finally became Mr. Great Britain, and then became Mr. Universe. And then he won a second Mr. Universe title and a third Mr. Universe title, and then all of a sudden he landed in Rome in Chinichita doing Hercules movies. And as I read, I became more and more certain. I had that vision very clearly laid out, to be a champion on that same stage where he won the Mr. Universe, and then to move to America, then get into movies. From that moment on, everything that I did, no matter how hard I had to work or how much I had to struggle, it didn't matter because I knew what the purpose was and I found my passion. Always discover your vision and the rest will follow. Now my second, my second rule is never ever think small. You have to go and shoot for the stars. I didn't just think about being in movies. No, I wanted to be a movie star. I wanted to have above the title building. I wanted to become the highest paid entertainer. I basically wanted to be another John Wayne. What's wrong with that? Never think small, think big. A third rule is ignore the naysayers. I think it is natural that when you have a big vision and big dreams and you have big goals that people are going to say around you, I don't think it can be done. I think it's impossible. I mean, it started right away when I was 15 years old and I became a bodybuilder. Right after that happened, I said, I want to be a world champion in bodybuilding. I want to be Mr. Universe. They immediately said, are you crazy? Bodybuilding is an American sport. Forget about it. It's nuts. And then when I wanted to go into show business, after I won 13 world championship titles in bodybuilding, I said, I want to be like Reg Park. I want to be a Hercules. I want to get into movies. Well, I tell you, when I met those agents and managers, their reaction was, 
<laughs> oh, Arnold, that is so funny. <laughs> you want to be what? A leading man? Oh, come on. I mean, look, uh, uh, first of all, let's start with your body. You're gigantic. You're like a monster. And then your accent, oh, it gives me the chills just listening to your German bullshit. Come on now. Have you ever seen an international movie star with a German accent? It doesn't happen. Forget about that. And then your name, what is it, Schwarzen Schnitzel or something like that? People are going to storm the theater and the movie houses because Schwarzen Schnitzel is starring in a movie. Oh, yeah, I can see that already. Imagine that. Everywhere I turned, they said, no, it won't happen. It's not going to happen and forget about it. Luckily, I did not listen. I started taking acting classes, English classes, even accent removal classes. I ran around all day saying lines like, a fine wine grows on a vine. <laughs> all of a sudden, I got a little break. All of a sudden, I got a TV show. A little part, then another little part, and then pumping on and stay hungry, and then, of course, I landed the big role of Conan the Barbarian. So finally, I got the big, big break. And you know what was so interesting about it was the director said at the press conference, if we wouldn't have had Schwarzenegger with those muscles, we would have had to build one. And then when I did Terminator, James Cameron said, the I'll Be Back line became one of the most famous movie lines in history because of Arnold's crazy accent, because he sounded like a machine. So as you see, everything that the naysayers said was a liability became an asset. Ignore the naysayers. The fourth rule is work your ass off. You never want to fail because you didn't work hard enough. It doesn't matter in what area you're in. No pain, no gain. Listen, when I came to the United States, I remember that I trained five hours a day, every day, and I was managing a construction business and I was a bricklayer. And I went to college also. And I took acting classes from eight o'clock at night to 12 o'clock midnight. Every day I did that. Work your butt off. That's what I always believe, no matter what you do, work, work, work. And my fifth and last rule is, don't just take, give something back. Tear down that mirror that makes you always look at yourself and you will be able to look beyond that mirror and you will see the millions and millions of people that need your help. And this is why I tried to take every opportunity that I could to give something back. I started training Special Olympians. I started after-school programs for the most vulnerable children, for inner-city children, to make them be able to say no to drugs, no to gangs and no to violence. We all can create change, whether it is in our neighborhood or in our local schools, because the bottom line is, it is up to us. Have a vision. Think big. Ignore the naysayers. Work your ass off and give back and change the world. Because if not us, who? If not now, when?